Welcome to The Mind Renewed. They're so worried that they've got to take over down here the direction of where it's going and get a one world system together, get rid of nationalities, and get one government, one religion, so we won't have war. That's the effort of man to bring about his own salvation. Hello everyone, this is Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme, or perhaps I should say back to the programme, depending on how you look at it, Anthony Rituno, who is a teacher, blogger and freethinker, originally from the UK, but now living and working in Spain, in Madrid. And uh, I say uh, welcome back to the show because, of course, uh, uh, many of you will recall that I featured Anthony's audio essay as a guest episode a few months back called Conspiracy Theory, A Powerful Phrase. So, in a way, uh, Anthony, it's your second time with us. Uh, it was great to be speaking to you in person. Thanks very much for coming on. Oh, thanks, Julian. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for letting the uh, ordinary people on here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all ordinary people, uh, yes. certainly. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, today, of course, we're going to be having what we've sort of um, talked together about being a conversation uh, rather than an interview or I'm going to say it's I'm going to say somewhere in the middle sort of halfway in between an interview and a conversation I don't know if that's possible but that's what I'm calling it because um, it's going to be less about me trying to get you to share specific information than it is about us exploring together uh, various issues that we've decided that we're going to discuss and um, although we've settled on a, a certain subject or sort of vague subject area that we're going to be chatting about um no doubt we'll go off at various tangents so but if we do it doesn't matter anyway um so the theme that we're going to be kind of pursuing is uh, what you call changing the discourse which i believe you there's a phrase you actually put into the audio essay um so i borrowed that from you and uh, i i think perhaps it would be best if i let you kind of define what you mean by changing the discourse rather than me trying to define it now because it's coming from you um so perhaps we could start by you introducing yourself to us mm. and give us an idea of how you started writing the kinds of things that you do at your blog which is called of course freethinker 75 and i'm just going to give people how they can get to that that's contrafib.blogspot.uk no doubt you'll you'll tell us that again later so as part of that could you explain what you mean by this uh, phrase changing the discourse then mm. Yeah, first of all, the fact that this conversation means I get to fire questions back at you as well. You do, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> right, changing the discourse. Okay, well, um, we, we have this term awakening um, in the truth movement. And by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the phrase truth movement, not necessarily relating to 9-11 truth, but the truth movement as, or alternative media, if you want to call it that, as a sort of group of people who at various times have realized that there's something that they haven't been told or that they've been misled pretty much from day one and that they've suddenly realized that there's all this alternative information out there, which thanks to the internet is, is now coming out. So I'm going to use the truth movement in that way. Um, well, I suppose the best way to talk about it is to talk about, I guess, the change that happened to me about, say, six years ago, 2008, let's say. Mm -hmm. I think there are certain people that are open to this kind of information and I mean, I was always, when I was a kid, I was always the dreamy kid. You know, my reports from at the age of nine were always, oh, spends too much time looking out the window and all that kind of thing. <laughs> I think if you look at people in the truth movement, you'll find that that's 
quite a common thing. You know, they quite often are the sort of, I don't know, you could say outcast, but maybe that's too strong a word. Maybe just the person who innately had quite independent thoughts from a young age. And I, I can remember when I was relatively young thinking things that I think, well, you know, most kids of 10 or 11 probably don't think like that. And I've got a, a nephew, actually, my youngest nephew is about 10, and I can see definitely see some of that in him as well, just a sort of slightly perceptive. So I think really what happened in 2008 was that I had friends like sending me links and I had a friend who, you know, I have to credit Alex Jones. I guess we're going to talk about him later. And I mean, he's, you know, he's a dubious character nowadays, but I have to credit him. I had a friend of mine when I was living in Thailand who used to send me links and we ended up talking about it. And I was very resistant at first. And I went through all the sort of um, stages that people go through when you give them alternative information there sort of ridiculing, getting angry, denying, all that kind of thing. But for me, it didn't really last that long. After about two or three months, I realized that the person who was giving me the information was someone who I pretty much trusted, someone I'd known a few years. And one of the things that he really realized, or he made me realize, is that most people's conversations are incredibly frivolous. You know, and I'm going to say that, you know, I'm I'm not afraid of, like, uh, ruffling a few feathers by saying that. I, I know the kind of thing that you mean. I'm just wondering whether that is representing what's going on inside people's heads or whether that is, uh, you know, a set of forces that are applied to people such that they only speak mm. in these kinds of ways. But really, there might be a, a conversation going on in the head that's a, a lot more profound. Yeah, you may well be right. And I, I think when we say change in the discourse, we are talking about what comes out of people's mouths rather than what's in, in their heads. So really, I'm talking on one level mm. about conversations you know, explicit conversations, stuff that people talk about, you know, let's use offices as an example, because your British uh, listeners will definitely know The Office, the Ricky mm. Gervais series. But Fantastic series, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was. And I mean, it, it was made for the American market, but I think the American market, they're on like series 10 or something. Ricky Gervais' one was perfect because he followed the Faulty Towers remit of do 12 episodes of high quality and then just leave it, you know. Mm -hmm. And what really got out of that is, you know, I worked in office for a few years. And, and again, you know, a lot of people aren't going to like me saying this, but I mean, I, I was working in an accounts office, which you might say is the, is the perfect embodiment of a sort of quite soulless, soulless environment. So, so was it around that time that you were challenged with this alternative information? Not when I was working in the office. No, that was a, that was a long time before. Mm -hmm. What I was going to say was that I think, I think offices are a good thing to talk about because if you think about the actual physically limiting environment, I think it may well influence people's minds. So I think you're definitely right that there may well be inner conversations going on. But really what I'm talking about with changing the discourse is changing actually what comes out of people's mouths, let's say, mm. or changing the general atmosphere. Yeah, I take what you mean about offices there, but uh, can we just, just move slightly more broadly than that? Because I'm just wondering sure. what happened to you when you were bombarded by this new information. And you said, first of all, you regarded it with suspicion. There was some ridicule, but it didn't last very long. Uh, and, and then you started to take it seriously. And you presumably you did a little bit of this going down the rabbit hole. I don't know. Else we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But how did that affect your discourse with other people? Um Again, it was it was quite a gradual thing. I think it actually comes down to courage in a way. And I think what happened was that over a period, for about three years, it was sort of almost an underground thing. There was about three or four of us who were all teachers. And we'd meet and we'd talk about this. And what's strange about it is that, you know, the kind of stereotype of the conspiracy people all meeting in like 
rooms to talk. We were actually like that purely because it was sort of a mixture of slightly uh, nervous about talking to people about it and slightly kind of feeling like it might not be worth it. Um, so I think what happened to me is that gradually I just sort of plucked up a bit more courage. And I mean, I am a performer. I'm quite a shy person in, in another aspect, but I'm also performing. I'm a musician. I've been to drama school. So, you know, I'm not afraid of, and also a teacher, as you said, so I'm not afraid of being the one person. It's even quite stimulating after a while. The first time it happens and the whole room's sort of giving you funny looks and you feel like a bit of an idiot, you know, all you really have to do is kind of walk through the, the fear a little bit. So I suppose after having, you know, a lot of those conversations, all that happened to me was that I just plucked up the courage a bit and you know i started doing a lot of research yeah so you had that situation where there was a group of you and you were rather tentative to start with but you presumably you built up a rapport with each other and you were much more free about sharing the the kinds of concerns that you had mm. but now you, you seem to be talking about a general freedom that you have to talk more openly to people about this now this is i speak from behind the microphone but yeah i still struggle with sharing i wouldn't say any of these kinds of concerns because i consider if we're going to call it the truth movement i consider that very very broad in fact yes. to include all sorts of challenges to the way people think so um there are some other areas which i would call truth movement if we're going to use that term that um i'm more happy with sharing and challenging people with but let's just take let's say 9-11 to to actually pinpoint this um and as it is indeed the day isn't it yes. <laughs> so i find as i've said on a couple of other podcasts actually i do still find difficulty broaching that subject so what can you say from your experience have you found a way through that yes i have um I'm slightly different because uh, I'm fairly used to sort of standing in front of audiences and singing and playing the guitar or whatever. But um, no, I'll give you um, my Bologna experience mm. if you want. I lived in um, Bologna from 2011 to 2013, and I was teaching there. And um, I met quite a number of people through a thing they called Intercambio, which is language exchange, where you, you know, you go with people who want to learn certain languages, and it's partly social and partly uh, language exchange. And so I made, a lot, I made a lot of friends, and they were a mixture of uh, Italians, a couple of Spanish people, an English, a couple of English people, a couple of Americans. So it was a nice mixture. And basically what happened was that uh, we used to meet, and it became more of a social thing than a language thing, to be honest. And so I had this group of friends. And, you know, the, whenever you meet virtually anyone, the protocol, the sort of unwritten protocol, is to just talk about everyday stuff. And if you're to a philosophically minded person, let's say, it that's fairly inane like again if you have a group of people and you spend like you know five years just talking about nothing to me that would be kind of a waste so all I did really was I just started talking about stuff you know all the people I met they were all kind of polite no one really ridiculed me or was aggressive towards me and it was just a gradual process I mean while I was doing it I was spending most of my free time as sort of 2010-2011 was probably I suppose the peak of my research and I developed, I suppose, techniques like saying, um, oh, I heard about this, uh, da, da, da. Instead of, you know, being a, trying to be kind of smug and saying, well, I know this and you don't. Mm. Uh, you know, I started to employ techniques. You know, I'm not, not ashamed of saying that. But you found that people actually responded when you said that kind of thing. Over a period of time. And I think the main reason they did that was because they could see, you know, you can sense in, in people. You know, everyone's got an innate sense, even if they don't necessarily practice it or exercise it much. 
I think, you know, I just presented them with facts and presumably I'm, I'm kind of guessing that one or two people in the group probably maybe went on the internet and thought, oh, yeah, that guy, Anthony, was talking about banking, blah, blah, blah. And then probably found out that what I was saying was true. And I think also, apart from when I first found the information, when, you know, I was kind of found out about Building 7 and I was probably a little bit too kind of zealous about truth. After, you know, a year or two, um, I moderated it a bit. And I think they could just see that I was a kind of a rational guy. You know, I was like the James Corbett as opposed to the Alex Jones, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. But didn't you get that kind of response, which, of course, we had with that Barry Zwicker interview where, you know, people would say, oh, right. Oh, yeah. So you're one of those conspiracy theory people. No, I didn't. and I, Not much. Anyway, I think it was mainly because. Uh, it may be actually lucky in my respect that it was quite a multicultural group. Mm. Uh, I think among, I'm generalizing of course, but among like, I don't know, a group of English guys down a pub, just to give an example, I think they'd be more, you know, what we call making fun, usually good natured. But I suppose in this particular group, it was, I said it was more multicultural and they just, I just happened to stumble upon a group of people that perhaps were more open-minded. And, but even if they had ridiculed me, I mean, after a while, you, you have to just stop worrying about that you know just going to say about um david ike i mean we know i know that now you know he does come with a hell of a lot of baggage and a lot of people don't like him and everything but listening when i first became aware of him again sort of 20 years after the wogan interview the famous wogan interview he said you know all this ridicule you know it taught me to not care about what people think and i mean that in a good way i don't mean you know don't care about what your family says or anything Again, I, I studied psychology at college. It's sort of another string to my bow, if you like. And I know that that, in a way, is a kind of a front. You have to choose, after a while, whether to be intimidated by it or not. And if you're just, you know, calmly rational and you've got facts to back up what you're saying, it's very difficult, really, in the end, for people not to take any notice. And the ones that do, you have to accept, after a while, that they're in denial. I wanted to ask you, you just said that you had some training in psychology and you've been talking in rather psychological terms, really. And so I just wanted to ask you about any of these issues that Frances Shaw has brought up in a recent set of articles that she's had published month on month at Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth called Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse? about 9-11 um, and many of the things that she says in these articles don't actually just apply to 9-11 they're more broad than that really and she's picking out various psychological truths and insights and research and talking about them with respect to that issue and I'm just wondering if you have any connection in your experience in talking to people with these kinds of things that she brings up so I'll, I'll just mention a few of them perhaps um she talks about people having a, a worldview resistance to challenging information, having a, a kind of inbuilt, hardwired, this, this will be all of us, of course, trust in authority. We'll have that to different degrees. Should we just go with those two for the moment? Uh, so a, a kind of worldview, deep worldview resistance to some information and also a different degrees of trust in authority. Right. Uh, worldview resistance. I think it varies with people. I, I think some people seem to be innately open minded, more flexible, and some people tend to be a bit more fixed. Um, I think in a practical sense, I mean, do we know that it's psychological or is it someone just responding because of their life situation? And I'll give you an example. There's a really good film that I, I would recommend to everyone. Uh, it was made by John Carpenter called They Live. Have you ever seen that? 
No, I haven't. No. I mean, I really highly recommend watching it. I mean, it's a fun. It's actually a fun film on one level as well. Basically, this guy discovers a pair of sunglasses, and when he puts the sunglasses on, all the billboards he sees say "Obey, Submit to Authority." And when uh-huh. he takes sunglasses off, they're shiny advertisements. And also when he looks at people, he sees skeletons, which is a sort of a metaphor for saying that people are kind of dead in a way or they're not alive to possibility. Anyway, basically, this guy ends up getting in actually a physical fight with someone that he's trying to get to put the glasses on. And what the guy says to him is, uh, I've got a family to feed. And essentially what he's saying is, I don't want to know the truth. I'm sure there's a truth. I'm sure you've got the sunglasses, but I've got a family to feed. So I think it's totally valid what she's talking about. But isn't part of it a practical thing? Your life situation is telling your brain to resist this. Mm. Actually, she does talk about that in another article which she, on Doublethink, actually. Oh, right. uh, obviously, that comes from 1984 Newspeak uh, Dictionary, doesn't it? Uh, well, the idea that you hold two contradictory ideas. Well, you hold them in your mind in a kind of fuzzy, unconscious way. You hold these simultaneously, but you would bring out different aspects of that in different circumstances. Yeah. So, yeah, and this guy would, you know, would say... If you, you challenge you, yeah, I, I, maybe that's true. Maybe I believe that. But then in a, a different mode of this same mind would say, but yes, I've got a family to feed. So there's a kind of double think going on there. So, I mean, what I was really thinking of with this this kind of worldview resistance thing, I, th- I think, and if I go back to the example that David Ray Griffin gives in a number of his books, where he says that one of the reasons why people seem to be resistant to alternative ideas about 9-11 irrespective of whatever the evidence may say, would just be because what he calls the religion of American exceptionalism. And we could say here, British exceptionalism, you know, the, the idea that, well, that just couldn't, nobody in authority could have been involved in doing such a thing because we just don't do that kind of thing. And that's a kind of worldview position which can trump any evidence that comes along. Yeah, obviously I was brought up in, in Britain, so I know a fair amount about British society. And I'm very interested in America and I've got American friends that I've made in the last few years, so I can actually talk to you a little bit about that. I think, really, you can't deny that there's been huge brainwashing going on. I mean, you think about growing up in Britain. I mean, I'm 39. I was born in 75. I used to talk to my granddad about stuff. My granddad was in the Second World War. and I mean, he wasn't really anti-establishment at all. But I kind of got a flavor for how someone of his generation sees it. And I think, you know... For example, the British Empire has been made out to be this glorious thing when, as far as I can see, it's just mass slaughter. So, I mean, uh, brainwashing cannot be denied, and it's so powerful. You know, I think it's maybe even more powerful than we realize because, of course, it's uh, targeting, let's say, or attacking um, the subconscious and the unconscious, which is, you know, 90 to 95% of our mind's capacity. And then if you factor in the fact of media, and I mean, if you really analyze media, you know, the the spiritual guy, the the guy with the alternative view is always ostracized and laughed at, particularly in comedy, because stereotypes generally are funny. You know, if you if you have an Italian guy in a in a sitcom, what would be funny about just an Italian guy being exactly like everyone else, but speaking Italian? You know, he's got to be like a Latin lover with like three days stubble and, uh, you know, (laughs) sort of a ladies man so i think really to answer your question it's really brainwashing and this american friend actually he was a good person to talk to because he grew up in the deep south and then he moved to la and he said that you know when when i grew up in the deep south you know the flags everywhere we were singing god bless america you know at primary school and honestly i have to say you know brainwashing to a great extent whereas in english people 
there is definitely a stiffness about British society, you know, and someone like John Cleese has brilliantly, you know, lampooned that. And so I think between British and American, they have strengths and weaknesses. But the funny thing is, you're right, the common link is that no one will quite take that leap between saying, oh, you know, what we read in the papers is rubbish and I don't believe politicians. They can't seem to make that leap between that and saying that, you know, they're capable of, you know, murder. You know, you know, times when people talk about what happened in Nazi Germany, of course, and I, I, you know, I think many people would say, well, that kind of thing couldn't possibly happen here now. And I think to myself, well, why? Yeah. And I think there's a kind of implicit racism in that. Absolutely. Uh, it could happen in Germany if you were to press. Well, why? Well, why? Why are you saying that? Why are you thinking that? And although it's unspoken, I think there is a bit of, well, because they're Germans and we're not. Uh, whoops. <laughs> we're all humans. And I think any of us could be susceptible to the kind of forces that took place there. And, you know, what are we seeing happening, actually? You know, uh, Yeah, I hate to say it, but I mean, I, I think there is an inherent racism. Uh, again, I, I think it's to do with brainwashing. I mean, I'll give you an example. I live in Madrid and I take the metro every day and there's a lot of beggars in Madrid. And some of them are people who are been made homeless by the economic crash. And I mean, my Spanish is not brilliant, but I can understand basically they, they stand in the middle of the metro and they basically tell their story. Mm. I'm a father, you know, I lost, lost my house, etc. And it, it is incredible that, that traveling people, when, when they ask for money, no one gives them any money. And then when white people ask for money, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm one of these annoying people. I observe everything, you know. <laughs> that's my religion, if you want to call it that. Um, that's my addiction, I should say. And I observe that, and honestly, there's a clear distinction. So, I don't know, is it racism? I don't know. It's, again, through the media, we are taught to, to believe that other people don't value life as much as we do. I'm sorry, but, you know. Yeah, I only meant racist in the sense of believing that we are better in some way. And I think we're encouraged to think that way. Um which I think is false. I don't think we are better, but that's the kind of thing that David Ray Griffin is yeah. getting at, isn't it? And it was only recently, wasn't it, that uh, Kissinger was actually in his this essay that he wrote was saying that we you know we need to keep in mind that America is exceptional. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, Kissinger apparently can't go to Spain because he, he would be arrested as a war criminal. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd like to say, if, he, if he's listening to this, please, Henry, come on holiday to Spain. <laughs> you're, you're, you're ready for him to make a citizen's arrest <laughs> oh, I'll make a citizen's arrest, seriously <laughs> So going back to this train of thought, this thread that I've got going here from Francis yes. Shaw's articles You mentioned something about cognitive dissonance when you had this information in, back in 2008 Your initial reaction was a bit of ridicule, you said it didn't last very long But you did experience this cognitive dissonance, so this is a kind of you're pushed into a disequilibrium. The way you were thinking before uh, is now sort of thrown around inside your head and you don't quite know how to deal with it. So initially you're pushing it away through ridicule. What was going through your head at the time? Well, um, I think I've always seen myself as a positive person. And so I've, I suppose my weakness used to be that I had an allergic reaction to negativity. And I mean, that could be something to do with living in England. Again, as your English listeners will, will know that, you know, we do moan a lot in England. I mean, there's a, and I mean, I think a lot of it is weather-based because the weather is so gloomy, it's so grey in general. The weather's so changeable that it, it kind of wears you down. That's right. And what you, you see the weather forecast and it says it's going to be sunny and you, people just start saying, 
there's no way we can trust that. It'll rain. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, my, as I said, my weakness was I, I hated cynicism. And I think at the time I didn't really understand the difference between cynicism and scepticism. Basically, what was going through my mind was this negativity is horrible. Also, another thing was that Obama had recently come in and these friends that I was talking about who were trying to sort of alert me were sending very negative sounding emails without any kind of introduction. And I, I was thinking, although I, you know, I wasn't jumping up and down when Obama came in, but I was thinking, you know, give him a chance. You know, I didn't really realize what a stitch up it was, basically. And so my reaction was really, you know, you're so negative. That was my allergic reaction. Everyone has an allergic reaction, I think. But, you know, it didn't really last long. And, and sort of the ridiculing, I have seen some studies which actually talk about the brain has the ability to filter out information it doesn't want to hear. So you're, you're almost literally not hearing it. So that would be my answer initially. So would you say if you were hearing about, I don't know what it was you were hearing about, 9-11, was it in 2008? It was more like maybe the role of the president, the idea that, you know, all these think tanks and everything, I didn't really want to... Because I didn't really want to believe that I'd been duped. I think that's another thing. But again, with me, thankfully, it didn't last long. But I think with other people, it's very difficult to uh, tell them they've been duped. So when you say the role of the president, like the idea that basically we've got a puppet here and he hasn't really got that much power, he just, he's just, just the front man kind of thing. Absolutely. Have you ever heard the Bill Hicks joke? Go on, tell me, what is it? I mean, he's only joking, but with all the best comedy, there's a fairly good element of truth. He said, uh, I'm not going to do his accent, but he said, do you, know what, do you know what I think what happens when a new president comes in? Basically, they take him down to a basement room where you have the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all the top industrialists. There's a projector in the room and they turn on the projector and they show you there's a Pruder JFK film from an angle that no one's ever seen. And you can see a gun being fired from the grassy knoll. And in some versions, he said, the gun's got CIA written on the side of it. <laughs> and you can see it. And then they turn off the projector and they turn to the new president and say, any questions? <laughs> <laughs> which is great you know you know you know exactly what he's trying to say i was just wondering if that's what was going through uh bush senior's mind when he was giving that speech and then uh, did a sort of smirk and turned to the side and looked at somebody or other when he was talking about the lone gunman <laughs> it's an amazing yeah, little clip yeah, that yeah, I, mean, I, I reckon that does say something yeah what was the event was it the anniversary yeah. of jfk uh, I think it was Gerald Ford's funeral. Yeah. I've actually, I've got that linked on the website. So if anybody wants to go and have a look at that, it's quite astonishing. He makes the remark and then looks to the side and smirks as if to say, yeah, well, we know, we know all about that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, it's like a 10 second clip. Everyone should watch that. It's only 10 seconds out of your life. Yeah. So I was really trying to push on this cognitive dissonance thing here. So you got wind of the fact that the president is basically not the president, um, just as our prime minister is not really the prime minister. Um, and one of the things that Francis Shaw talks about is the development of secondary beliefs. So this is the idea that your minds develop some alternative explanation that can kind of keep your worldview going. And it doesn't matter how implausible this alternative explanation mm. is. For you, it seems more plausible because to go against your basic worldview assumptions is just beyond the pale. There's no way you can go there. So you, you go for this kind of going back to the sort of philosophy of science idea. It's almost like this Ptolemaic epicycle. You know, you uh, mm. you, you invent something that keeps the theory going, kind of thing. Um, I can't think of an exact example. Well, how about this? Is just off the top of my head. Okay, let's just say, supposing you're you see the video of Building 7 come down and you get somebody talking about um, you know, nanothermite and all this sort of stuff, and you think, wow, perhaps this is really a controlled demolition. And then maybe you think, 
Yeah, well, perhaps um, Building 7 was fitted with explosives as a kind of security measure, you know, all the important documents that were in that building, and perhaps that went off by accident. That's far more implausible, isn't it? But that would be a kind of secondary belief, just as a weird example, that your mind could create just not to accept what's in front of your eyes. Now, did you create any kind of secondary belief? Yeah, but I'm probably not the best example, because like I say, I didn't really suffer from it much, but... Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I think, like I say, the, the brain will actually automatically filter out certain things and, and formulate things for you. You know, they say that no two people hear the same thing in, in precisely the same way. So you're absolutely right. I mean, what I understand by cognitive dissonance, I think there's two definitions, but isn't it? It's basically a kind of, is it a feeling of unease you get when you're confronted with something that conflicts? Is that what you understand by it? That's what I understand it to be, yeah. Yeah, what you're talking about really is how the mind can actually split off between what you maybe innately know could be the truth or is the truth and your defence. Because I think what you're really talking about is a, is a defence mechanism. And I suppose the question is whether the brain formulates that itself or whether we have to consciously do it. But let's think about this for a second. What does the mainstream media do? You know, when you hear, let's give an example, Russell Brand, again, plenty of celebrity baggage but for all, for everything he is saying things on the mainstream tv you know he did the interview with paxman that people in alternative media are saying yeah that's right we've never heard that on tv now of course what the mainstream media will do is say oh he's a drug addict and what they're essentially doing is they're giving people an excuse to ignore that so they're doing what you're talking about what people do, I think a lot of people, is they'll read mainstream news because it gives them an excuse not to believe things that go outside their worldview. But I totally agree with, it, with the lady and with you that the, there's a split in the mind. I think that's what cognitive dissonance is. It's when you, when you hear something that goes against your defences, essentially, and especially, I think the point to be made is, if you tell me something about 9-11, and I'm a 9-11 sceptic, meaning a conspiracy sceptic, meaning someone who doesn't believe in conspiracies, the more truth there is in your statement, the harsher reaction I'm going to have to it. I'm pretty confident about saying that. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Yes, I do. Yeah. And I think this is one of the pieces of advice that Francis Shaw gives, actually, not to bombard people, yeah. but to work at it slowly and gently and rationally and all these kinds of things. Yeah. You're going to stand a much better chance of actually winning through in the end. Oh, totally, yeah. And I mean, as I said uh, a bit earlier, we shouldn't be above uh, using techniques. I think I put this in my conspiracy piece. As I said, saying like, you know, oh, I heard this and sort of, in a way, I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but... You know, I've been looking at this and, you know. Well, I, in, a, in a sense, I can sort of go along with that because what a lot of people will think by conspiracy theory is not what you mean when you say it. And so, therefore, I think it's justified to some extent, actually, to do that and, and you know, and offer – you're effectively offering a different definition, aren't you? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean – I guess anyone listening to this who's interested who hasn't hasn't listened to my piece or all the Barry's Wicker, you did a Barry's Wicker interview, or James Corbett's C word. Again, for anyone who, who's I don't know, I say waking up, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I want to come back to that in a minute, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, yeah, we will, we will. I think understanding that phrase, you know, I keep going on and on about it and people on Facebook are probably getting sick of it, but I just want to hammer it in the fact that this pejorative use is incredibly powerful because you can get a guy who's let's say i've researched a book for 10 years and i've discovered that you know that the cia is basically a mafia organization and all my book has got footnotes and it's got references and it's you know i've pulled off a 500 page book with everything footnoted and referenced you know someone could say ah oh, oh, conspiracy theory and essentially in my 10 years research all those hours 
amounts to nothing. You know, I think we really need to analyse how that phrase could become so powerful. You know, we know about the CIA uh, memo from 67, but it is amazing, isn't it, how powerful that is? It is incredible, yes. And uh, there was a piece, wasn't there, in Newsweek, just pulled it up here. This was in back in May. Uh, where this was really played on uh, to quite an embarrassing extent by a guy called Kurt Eichenwald. And it was really played on, even to the extent of saying that, you know, people who ask questions are secret conspiracy mm. theorists kind of thing. Um, as if now to, to ask questions is somehow illegitimate. Let me just, just find that. Um, mm. Okay, here's the paragraph. Often when prominent individuals suggest that their political opponents are engaged in nefarious activities, they hedge by saying they are merely attempting to raise questions that should be considered a way, experts say, of starting conspiracy theories. Quote, one of the most common ways of introducing a conspiracy theory is to just ask questions about an official account, end quote, says Karen Douglas, co-editor of the British Journal of Social Psychology and a senior academic who has researched conspiracy theories at Britain's University of Kent. Uh, and then another quote here. It's quite a powerful rhetorical tool because it doesn't require any content, just the introduction of a doubt of doubt about the official story. And it's pretty annoying that you're not even allowed there to ask questions. And of course, I suppose it doesn't, she's right in the sense that it doesn't require that you have any content, but it doesn't follow that you therefore don't necessarily have any content. There are lots of questions that are full of content. I mean, you could just say, well, I don't believe that account because how do I know it's true? I mean, there's no, there just is no content to that question. But most of the questions that I've heard people talk about and that I find interesting are absolutely packed full of content. So it's embarrassing coming from an academic, to be honest. Well, um, when, as soon as you said Karen Douglas, do you remember what I wrote about the Conspiracy Theories Conference? Yes, that was her, wasn't it? I mean, it's incredible, right? She goes up there. I mean, I didn't listen to all the talks, but I do try to plough through. I mean, there were three people who spoke for about an hour about why people believe conspiracy theories. And at the beginning of her talk, she said, um, I'd be paraphrasing, but it was something like, I'm not actually trying to find out the truth. And then uh, she did another thing which really angered me. She put a picture of uh, Paul McCartney, and I guess you know the theory that Paul McCartney died in about 66. She put up two pictures of Paul McCartney, which were clearly the same person before and after his supposed death. You know, and that was her example of conspiracy theories. I mean, what an insult. The other thing from that conspiracy conference, uh, have you heard of Ian R. Crane? I have actually heard of him, yes. I haven't heard him, but I've heard of him. Right, I mean, he's a pretty good speaker again a little bit of baggage but there you go but he was head of the 9-11 truth movement in britain with david shaler in the mid 2000s which was probably its peak i suppose 2005 2006 he was at the conspiracies conference and he was allowed to do his presentation at the end and he said uh, oh this conference is really amazing i've been sitting through all these academics talking about why people believe conspiracy theories there's one reason they haven't come up with that they've actually read something and found that it's true priceless it's a spot on isn't it yes that's that's the one thing that can't be mentioned indeed and of course you've got people like um david aronovich i'm sure you've heard of oh yes yes indeed i I had a good look at his voodoo histories book and uh i I was not impressed i have to say no i mean uh I, i mean he just appears on tv just really not coming up with any evidence at all other than we know what happened i mean and they challenged him actually they had a 7 7 debate and they had um tony gosling who you've interviewed on one side, and then um, I think it might have been Annie Marchand, who was David Shaler's partner. Mm. And then they had um, 
uh, Ronovich and another guy. So they had a sort of two against two thing. And it was all predictable. They never really got anywhere. And at the end, they said, have you heard of, uh, what's the guy who was the janitor in the basement of 9-11? Rodriguez. Rodriguez. Yes, yes. He said, have you heard of uh, William Rodriguez? William Rodriguez actually got a medal from George Bush for heroism. I don't know exactly what he did. Presumably, he helped uh, people get out of the building. But then, of course, he testified that um, there were explosions going off before the planes hit. And he was very quickly <laughs> excluded. He wasn't allowed to testify before the 9-11 Commission. Or if he was, they didn't do anything with his testimony. And they put that to David Aronovich. He said, oh, oh he's wrong. He's, he's, he's wrong. You know, that's all he could say. I mean, well, I thought I would just mention David Aronovich wrote an article in The Guardian in 2003, April 2003. I know about this. Where he said if Iraqi WNDs were, were never found, and this is his quote, mm-hmm. I will never believe another thing that I am told by our government or that of the U.S. ever again. And more to the point, neither will anyone else. Those weapons had better be there somewhere. Mm. <laughs> Priceless quote. Yeah, that one. Probably not that many people are even going to remember that, are they? I mean, we've got this thing like called the news cycle where, you know, things I think essentially people base their news on, on what's in fashion, frankly. You know, and it's not fashionable to talk about 9-11, but, you know, I still spent a bit of time today on Facebook posting and unfortunately it's all the same people who are kind of do know what's going on that all reply to me i never really get anyone who's skeptical to reply but there you go <laughs> oh, well you see we're told these days it's such a long time ago and yes. politicians will say we we need to move on and that kind yes. of thing and I, I just think well how can you ever move on from something like that yeah. uh, considering that the war on terror the, the surveillance state etc is also predicated on that it needs to be faced fairly and squarely really yeah I wanted to come back to your statement that what we're trying to encourage in ourselves and other people is not cynicism, but skepticism. And you said that there is a distinction to be drawn between the two, and I absolutely agree with you. This has to do with critical thinking, and a lot of people say that that's what we are trying to do. We're trying to encourage people to engage in critical thinking. I went to our helpful Wikipedia, <laughs> um, and I don't believe everything you read on Wikipedia. We all know that, of course. But it's a useful place to go to for bits and pieces and, and, and start off research and that kind of thing. And uh, so I went to there for a helpful definition of critical thinking. And I didn't find the first mm-hmm. thing it said particularly helpful, but the second thing I thought was quite helpful, where it said, um, quote, a persistent effort to examine any belief or supposed form of knowledge in the light of the evidence that supports or refutes it and the further conclusions to which it tends. So a persistent effort to examine your beliefs in the light of evidence that supports or refutes it. I think it's really quite helpful. But then my next question would be, is it not the case that a lot of people are engaged in critical thinking, but not with respect to particular issues? So is our business the removal of barriers, really? Not just about saying, look, carefully examine but also enabling people to remove particular barriers to critical thinking in certain areas. Oof. Um, so you're saying that people critically think in other areas of their lives, perhaps, but not to do with alternative information. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. If okay. something that comes along that, that jars, is this, you've got this cognitive dissonance, and, and at that point there's a clash with a worldview, mm-hmm. then the critical thinking can't operate. Whereas in other areas of life, they might well be thinking very clearly, but at that point, it can't operate. And if that's the case, then we are in the business of removing those barriers. So I don't think it's quite as simple as saying 
we're all for critical thinking, which we are. It's not just that. Surely there must be a sort of a concentrated mm. effort at certain nodes to remove barriers. That's how I think about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I suppose critical thinking is an action. But as I said, from studying psychology, a person's psychology drives their actions. So if you're actually saying to someone, I think you should think about this critically, essentially you're, it's a surface suggestion. You have to really... Yeah make a connection with the psychology which is driving their attitude if you grow up with a sort of mainstream education and mainstream media that's an alien thing to you is actually going back it's the same with you know the medical mm. industry mm. the criticism is always they treat symptoms rather than causes and essentially i think what you're talking about is we're trying to encourage people to go one step back and look at the root of where they're coming from Absolutely. So if we go yeah. back to the worldview thing, let's say about that American exceptionalism was just an yeah. example that I had there. Yeah. If there is that barrier in somebody that we're talking to, is it really wise to go straight for the jugular, as it were, and talk about, hey, look at those twin towers. You can see as they come down, they're exploding outwards. You know, when a building comes down, you don't get that kind of... There's a big, big resistance there. I mean, I'm just wondering whether in order to try to remove the barrier of this this American exceptionalism in this particular case, there would be a, a different way of gradually working at that. This is, for example, Operation Northwoods. So this isn't such a yeah. in-your-face thing, and it's a piece of evidence you could, that's been released. We can mm. see it, we can read it, and, we, and, and it is astonishing. And that can actually start, I think, to work away at one of these sort of lower strata of, of, of worldview comfort blankets. Um, and then... With a few examples like that, um, so what would another one be? Um, Tonkin. Gulf of Tonkin, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or here in the UK, you know, I had that interview with Mike Kenner on the uh, the MOD spraying us all here with bacteria and that kind of thing. Um, oh, yeah. Can actually open up the idea. Well, actually, perhaps we're not as exceptional as all that. Yeah. And then the critical thinking can actually start to act. Um, I think there's sort of two stages. First of all, you've got to make someone aware of. Just as example, give them a book to read. The first thing is that. It seems that like maybe 80% of people aren't even aware of certain things. And then once they know it, then some people will have one reaction, some people will have others. So I think for me, basically, when I'm, when I'm not working, you know, I socialize, I do all the normal stuff. But essentially, pretty much every day I have a conversation. You know, obviously, being a teacher and I work with advanced students who are quite often uh, adults. So, you know, they're very good at conversing in uh, English. And we can have very meaty conversations. And I kind of, uh, I've started in the last few years to sort of sneak stuff like this into my classes without appearing too outrageous or, you know, without sort of disturbing any of my students, <laughs> introducing it. And I, I feel that that's my role. You know, if you want to get sort of spiritual about it, that's my role in, in life, I suppose, communicating. You know, I found the thing that I need to do and all I really need to do now is put in the hours. I mean, I, I told you before, I'm actually working on a book I'm turning 40 next August, so I've got 11 months, and I thought it'd just be a nice milestone to actually have something finished uh, by then. Um, I feel that that's my role, and I guess I imagine that you you do as well. I mean, can I ask you actually what were the circumstances of your of your podcast, or why you started it? Yeah, you can ask me. I don't know whether I'll include it because I've I've said this a number of times on other podcasts. I think people might be getting a bit fed up with it. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually just asking what triggered you to start your podcast because you only started that two years ago, didn't you? That's right. I can tell you straight away. It was uh, the supposed assassination of Osama bin Laden. Um, it was. I was so outraged by the apparent stupidity of that. Yeah. 
which I now consider not to be apparent, but just stupidity, <laughs> um, that I just thought this is this is ridiculous. I've just got to lend my voice to this. Um, I felt so insulted by it, to be honest. That was the trigger. I mean, that wasn't the whole cause. That was the trigger. I was just going to use the word trigger, actually. And talking about this group in Bologna, you know, they didn't all become truthers, but a couple of my friends, you know, obviously I, I planted a seed and there was obviously a trigger moment with them. I think there is a trigger moment. And maybe the information cuts through the fear. I mean, I think really what we're talking about is fear in terms of not processing things, you know? Yes, I think you're right. And there was a point where the insult was greater than the fear. <laughs> yeah. Well, people also respond uh, to passion and sincerity. And I think, you know, politicians learn how to be sincere and salesmen learn how to be sincere. But I think there's no substitute for, for genuine sincerity. And I think... I find that when I am talking about things, now I'm a bit more confident than I used to be. The passion comes out, and it's amazing how people recognize that. Everyone has an innate sense. We're just trained to live in this kind of surface life, essentially an act, really. remember when I was very young, listening to an interview with Marlon Brando, who I always thought was a fascinating character, an amazing actor. Someone said to him, uh, do you think you're the greatest actor in the world? He said, he said, my dog is the greatest actor in the world. He pretends he loves me, but I know he doesn't. I know he just wants to be fed. And he said, everyone in this life is an actor. And I've never forgotten that. And I'm happy that I was only about 13 when I heard it because it really went into my brain, you know. What we've got really here is with the sort of media and with now social media and this, this kind of obsession with just inane stuff, we're essentially the real person, as you said, this sort of hidden person who's probably way more profound than they realise, is split off from this kind of person that we are in everyday life. You know, it's... You've used the word truther. We both used the term truth movement a number of times. And, of course, that's helpful to identify what we're talking about. But I have issues, as I know a lot of people do, with that kind of terminology. I have described myself as being involved in the truth movement a number of times, whatever that is. But part of me recoils from that because a lot of the things that I see going on, I think, well, that's not me. And if I were to give my own definition of it, it would, it would be really sprawling and, and would um, intersect in some parts with other people's definitions and not you know, in other areas. And, and I would consider it, you know, even from my Christian perspective that I'm trying to alert people to getting rid of barriers in certain areas and think in certain ways. And I would consider that to be part of my definition of the truth movement. And, you know, I'm just doing what I'm doing. And some of it coincides with what other people are doing. And they might call themselves truthers. But I think if I own that term, it implies to other people that I believe in X, Y, and Z, when perhaps I don't. So I'm just wondering if there is a truth movement, a truth movement. Is, is it helpful? Perhaps we shouldn't be using those categories. Well, I was using truther earlier, as I said at the beginning of our talk. Uh, I was just using it as a kind of a term of convenience. I, th I think to answer your question, I think there's sort of two types of movement. There's a movement which has X amount of members and meets every week or whatever and has a, has a leader, you know, and there's almost like a Facebook group, you know, a Facebook group could turn into a movement, let's say. And then there's a sort of, if you take movement as in a movement of people who've all discovering similar things. It's what happened to me when I, when I discovered all this information. I actually found that as I was listening to podcasts and things like that, people kept using the term awakening. And I suddenly thought, well, I've never actually like heard anyone say that to me directly. Everyone's using this word. It's, it's one of those amazing things where you find people who are having exactly the same experiences as you 
in different mm. countries or in different contexts. So I think it's a loose movement. For example, uh, I subscribe to a, to a certain amount of podcasts, of course, including yours. Um, you know, Corbett, Tom Secker, Dan Carlin, the various ones. And I think they're all, I think alternative media is a far better word. And of course, you've got a podcast, so essentially podcast is a type of media. So you could very justifiably say I'm active in the alternative media. So maybe that's a better, I think I'm using Truther because it started out as 9-11 Truth and they, they had a group called 9-11 Truth who were trying to find the truth. Maybe we should call ourselves trying to find the truthers. <laughs> that's not very catchy no. no it's not is it no i like the uh, the the alt media kind of uh, thing yeah that, that that that's good the kind of thing that i was thinking of, of which just just this is just me and i know a lot of people will will not like me saying this it's just it's the way it is i would consider say for example my interest in the intelligent design movement to be part of the same thing because that is something that's marginalized you're not supposed to take that seriously you're not supposed to listen to their arguments that is creationism and of course if, if you look, just start looking at it you realize just how different what they're saying is from the six-day creationists uh, but you're not you're not supposed to listen to that stuff so, but i cover that kind of thing in my podcast and as far as i can see that's all part of the same thing because mm. it's fighting against propaganda um in this case you know uh, neo-darwinian evolutionary propaganda mm. um and you're not allowed to question that well i question it just like i question all sorts of other things um, so why can't that, why can't that be part of my definition of what it is to be a trying to find the truther? <laughs> oh, I mean, totally. Yeah, it's just that I mean, I suppose what most people regard as the truth movement has core um, mm. issues. So yeah. you know, nine eleven seven seven, the sort of general alternative history, you know, including things like you know Tonkin and Pearl Harbor and all that kind of thing, mm. and then the banking system is a big part of it. And the surveillance state is a big part of it. So I think, yeah, obviously, as we're saying, you know, it's all it's all terminology is is free to be used by whoever in whatever way, basically. Sure. But, uh, I think it's, it's 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 worth just sort of driving past these things and uh, taking a look at them and questioning what the way we're speaking and why we're speaking that way. And another one I think would be. As again, you've mentioned this a number of times. Uh, waking up mm. that uh, image there. Um, I have used that myself many times. Mm -hmm. I do sometimes wonder whether it's the right terminology. I mean, this is coming back to the what I was saying about uh, critical thinking, and I think that people do use their critical faculties in other areas. So are people asleep generally? Well, no, I don't think so. It, only in certain areas are they asleep. If it, so I'm just wondering whether that really is a, a good metaphor at all. Right. I mean, I beg to differ when you said people are asleep. I mean, again... You know, there's lots of levels of consciousness, but mm. I honestly, and I'm talking from observation and, and things like that, I think people are asleep, basically. I think that um, so many people, when when you, you'll say something to them, they do realize it's kind of true, and they say, oh, yeah. I, I think we're almost like we're a bit just zombified. And I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for that. You know, it could be because we... You know, apparently the average person still watches four hours of TV a day. You know, there was a study in England, anyway, I don't know about the rest of the world. But, you know, maybe I haven't looked in that much about, you know, the waves from the TV may be messing with us. Food clearly is, is extremely chemical. And most food, I would argue, is processed food, certainly what you buy in the supermarket. And I think it's all zombifying. You know, I'm a bit on the fence about fluoride, even though I've just posted something about on my blog about fluoride. 
I honestly think, yeah, we, we, we have kind of been zombified. And, of course, we know that when you watch TV, is it the alpha state? I think it's the alpha state you go into. You go into a sort of compliance state. Mm. So I beg to differ with you about people being asleep, depending, of course, on um, you know the level of consciousness you're talking about. But, I mean, if I could just give you an example. I Okay, can I just jump in there? Because you're absolutely fine to disagree with me. And I think, in a sense, we're not fully disagreeing. Um, no. I'm just, it, it's a kind of blanket term, you know, people are asleep, they need to wake up. And when it's said like that, it can, it sort of covers everything mm. and gives the impression that people are, it's, uh, I suppose I'm also influenced by this term, which I don't like, which is sheeple. I mean, right. that sort of says th- these people, these sheeple, they're not thinking critically. Our job is to wake them up in some kind of whole sense, almost like to convert them. And I'm not sure that's really right. I mean, mm. I think if we're going to use the word sleep and waking up, we're talking about narrow areas where, there, as I said before, where there are these blockages. So it, I'm just trying to nuance the, the kind of language that we're using here. That's that's all I'm doing. Because I think there are dangers if we if we don't nuance this of falling into other kinds of mentalities. And one that I have, I have in mind here is where waking up, if, if it's seen in this broader sense, can be thought of in a religious way. So I see in some areas of the large areas of the truth movement, there's a kind of tact on new age element where we're not just asking people to, as it were, wake up to certain issues, but to wake up generally. It's a big paradigm shift where the whole of your way of looking at the world, you are asleep, you're in the platonic cave and <laughs> you've got to come out into the sunshine and see that the whole of yeah. the world is not quite as you thought it was before and of course this is going into the matrix territory here which was a very useful tool in discussion and a, mm. a fantastic film and full, full of fantastic ideas and but you see you see the danger i'm i'm thinking of there well um I w- yeah i'd like to talk about the matrix in a minute actually because I, you're right it's an amazing amazing film actually um, mm. um, all right could you give me an example okay let's take a person who <laughs> no, let's take an average person they've got no idea about the stuff we're talking about they follow the mainstream news they're an intelligent person but they have this uh, worldview resistance okay in what other areas of their life are they critically thinking can you get just hypothetically do you mean in their job like when they're at work for example or? Yeah, and anything that isn't controversial. Okay. Yeah, in their job. Well, anything. They're reading a book, they're reading a novel, they're going to work, they're chatting with people, they're, okay. they're, they go to university and they study a particular subject. But then when you touch on a particular issue, that all stops. Okay. So they're asleep in that area. They're not asleep right across the board. All right, well, let me give, let me give you a rebuttal to that. Mm-hmm. So we've got this person who doesn't know much about uh, quote unquote truth issues, but it practices critical thinking in other areas of their lives. Now, I would argue, let me give you uh, a rebuttal. If they uh, exercise critical thinking in uh, deciding what novel they want to buy from a bookshop, let's say, the rebuttal to that would be yes, they are capable of critical thinking, but that choice they're making isn't necessarily affecting anyone else's life. Whereas it is fair to say that the truth movement is dealing with some fairly fundamental issues that affect people's lives. You know, if you make podcasts questioning war, the banking system, you know, I mean, that's fundamental. So I think you're right, but maybe it's slightly in the delivery. If you're saying it in a condescending way, then I totally agree that's that's wrong. But that kind of comes back to, in a way, how you say it. I mean, I can say that I woke up because I'm talking about myself, but I probably maybe wouldn't use that terminology when I'm talking to other people, you know. Mm. 
I mean, I, I brought up this business about sort of conversion, uh, something that does kind of yeah, no, I understand. concern me. It interests me, actually, because I do see parallels. I sort of see it in an inverted way. Uh, people talk about, you know, this going down the rabbit hole and all that. It's a big worldview kind of change in many cases. And there are different levels of worldview, okay? If you don't think, say, you know, the British nation is as exceptional as you thought before, that's not on the same worldview level as once being a materialist and then believing in spiritual realities, you know what I mean? There are different levels of this kind of thing. But often there's a kind of worldview shift that takes place there. So it's on that kind of religious dimension. I said to you in the notes that we were transferring to each other that I'd gone back to William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. And in the conversion section, he talks about how people often have this kind of psychological disordering and then they experience a conversion and then there's an equilibrium and they feel a lot happier. And and he's not making any judgment about whether this is spiritually real or not. So, you know, um, I'm not criticizing him at all. You know, he's just observing this kind of thing going on. It seems to me that very often this is the opposite with people when they're going down the rabbit hole. There's there was an equilibrium and now it's all thrown. There's a new chaos that takes place kind of religious thing you know what i mean it's a kind of something similar there it's psychologically going on and i'm just wondering if when we see the truth movement moving over into being more overtly spiritual whether there that's coming from people's need then to find order again and, and build a new worldview and so there's a temptation to throw within the truth movement itself a, a spiritual dimension and i'm not saying that's wrong yeah. you shouldn't do that what I'm wondering is whether it's a necessary part. Yeah. What you've described about sort of dismantling and then coming back together and reaching an equilibrium, you, you basically just described the last five years for me. <laughs> right. Because I did go through uh, quite a low period, and I felt that I was getting a bit too bogged down in it. But there must have been something in me, maybe curiosity or something, that made me keep going. So I think the people who've really got an equilibrium initially maybe there'd be a point where they wouldn't go any further down the rabbit hole maybe the people that go deeper maybe they didn't have an equilibrium before it's a difficult one it is a difficult one yeah you're probably we're getting beyond element, what i mean even can you define spiritual i mean uh, oh well this is the thing is that we could <laughs> we, 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 we yeah yeah we can go on and on. we can go down a different rabbit hole with that one <laughs> yeah sure i'm not sure if i um i mean I, you know am i a spiritual person am i religious i I believe there is a connection between us, but I I can't really, I wouldn't have any idea what camp I'm in on that. I think um, if spirituality is trying to connect with something deeper, I know that's a terribly sort of vague description. I think what I found with this sort of alternative information and the sort of the podcast world, the alternative media, what I found so incredible about it over the last five years is that it seems to encompass everything I'm interested in. So, you know, with information, you've got politics, which I was always interested in, history, which I was always interested in. And then in this sort of rebuilding of a person as a personal journey rather than converting other people, you've got elements of philosophy, spirituality, and psychology. And essentially, that's all my interests, apart from music, encompassed in one thing. So I suppose I found it personally all very all-encompassing. But looking deeper, if you want to just call it looking deeper, I... Yeah, I think that the people who it's really bad for to look deeper, they generally won't. There'll be a point where they won't do it anymore. I think there must be motivation. You can't really make people do things just by talking to them. 
Well, I think that what you've said there about all these things that are of concern to you, um, and you find lots of connections, people are talking about all many of these things that you're interested in. And really that comes back to the, the point that I was trying to make, that in a way it's indefinable. It's all of us doing the things that we're doing, asking the kinds of questions that we're asking. And, you know, like a Venn diagram, we, we sort of intersect at certain points. And if you want to call that the truth movement there, where there's the intersection, okay, fair enough, you call it that. Um, but it's much broader than a lot of people think, isn't it? And difficult to define. And I'm, I'm happy with that, actually. I don't want to be pinned down. I'm asking the questions I am, and they're slightly different from somebody else's questions. Well, I mean, I, I would say that you are definitely in the alternative media. From what you talk about, mm. it's clear that you have, an, whatever this term means, you have that and I have that. and You kind of know people. I mean, I, I've been in Spain uh, about eight months, and I've already met four or five people. And you just know when you start talking to them by a few things they say that you're, you're of a similar mind. You know, so I think there's a common thread, which... You know, and there are certain podcasts. I mean, I, I could give you, for example, say a list of 20 podcasts that I think are all the same way, similar way inclined. They may be coming at it from different angles, but I, I think there's a community. It's another word we could use. You know, because you hear people using similar language and coming up with similar examples. So you know that they're part of something. Now, going back to when you were talking about waking up, I think the way it's delivered is quite important. If it's delivered in a smug way or in a condescending way, then, you know, it is a bit of an insult if you say someone's totally asleep. But I think most of us are asleep, so <laughs> I have a different view, you know. Yeah, okay, so still using this image of being asleep or you could say blindness or being in chains or there are all sorts of things that you could use. And uh, I'm just thinking, going yeah. back to The Matrix, which we both mentioned early, earlier on, Morpheus says about sleep quite a lot, doesn't he? I mean, and, he's, and there's the blindness uh, metaphor. You know, What's this famous quote I've got here? It, it is the world uh, that has been pulled over your eyes to blind... The world that's been pulled over your eyes. I beg your pardon? The, the world that's been pulled over your eyes, I think. Is it really? I think so, yeah. Um, well, we'll just hear that bit. <laughs> That's a little bit. I'll bet you uh, a virtual euro. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're on. A, no a notional one. <laughs> Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad it is this feeling that has brought you to me do you know what I'm talking about the matrix do you want to know what it is the matrix is everywhere it is all around us even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. 
you sent me some links. Is it Rob Ager, a friend of yours? He's done yeah. this uh, analysis of the Matrix. I thought it was really interesting. Lots of uh, great things in there. You also sent me another one, didn't you? It was sort of more humorous, which is uh, looking at that possible yeah. reference to 9-11 on the, is it the passport of Neo, isn't it, while he's being in- interrogated there? Uh, which is quite a really quite an intriguing one there, that that, should, that, that date should ha- happen to be there. Yeah, yeah. But this video Absolutely then put a whole brilliant. load of other movies uh, in a line and, and showed how the possibly references to, to 9-11 in there, and all, all of them were fairly ridiculous leading up leading up to uh, one in which mel yeah. gibson was sitting on a chair and the chair collapsed and then it showed the towers so as if this was a reference to that so it was obviously a, you know it was taking taking the mickey of, of, oh, yeah, of the whole totally. thing but i think in a way that was a bit unfortunate because that one uh, that could be a reference to 9-11 within the matrix is you know there's some justification for being suspicious about that one because of the subject matter of the, the matrix and that it happens to be that date and it's talking about that's the expiry something changes something ends on that date and that's that is really interesting i, don't, yeah, yeah. I do tend to think that it was chance but you know I'm, I'm not completely against the idea that there could have been nudge nudge wink wink going on there put that date in we're not telling you why but you, you won't regret it if you put it in. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah, for, for people that um, don't know what we're talking about, in The Matrix, the expiry date of Neo's passport is September 11th, 2001. I mean, when I saw that, I, I just I thought, oh. The interesting thing about that is, okay, it's, I'm saying it's probably chance, but supposing <laughs> it wasn't chance, but supposing, you know, there was some sort of deep state operative Hollywood saying, you know, put that in. But what's the effect of that? Yeah. What does it do? I mean, it's so obscure. So it couldn't be a warning. It couldn't be telling anybody that this is going to happen. So what's the purpose in mm-hmm. that? One thing that comes to mind is that it could be put this in because then later on when it happens, people will look back and say, ah, that was something significant. And then others will say, well, how ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I mean, all I'd say about that is uh, I actually met Rob Ager. I contacted him and we ended up meeting in Liverpool. He's a really nice fellow and Within, you know, two minutes, there was kind of a rapport. We, we knew kind of subjects that we were both mutually interested in. And I actually asked him, because he, he's a bit of a Kubrick obsessive, as I am, I suppose. And I asked him, you know, all these little things that directors put in their films, is there any point to them? Do people pick up on them? And he, he's also read a lot about psychology. And he said, probably yes. And um, there's the famous, if you heard of the famous Coca-Cola advertisement, where they flashed Coca-Cola on the screen wow. during a film for like a nanosecond, you know, and that Coke sales went up by uh, like 30% or 20% or something. So um, if you watch the film, mm-hmm. you can actually see that. I've never seen it in real time because they sort of show it in slow motion, don't they? Mm, that's right. And it's upside down as well. I was it upside down, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah. possible that if you're watching it, that it could go into your brain. But I mean, on that one, I would probably agree with you that it's chance. Yeah. I, th- I think so, but you know, just what about this alternative explanation that it, you know you can't pick up on that? It probably can't pick up mm. on that. It's it goes by so quickly, it's upside down. Yeah. But here we are now talking about mm. it and saying, oh, maybe there's something in that. Yeah. There's a proportion of the population who might listen to this and go, oh, what are these guys? They're nuts. Yeah, they're- oh, this 9/11 stuff is nuts. So I mean, it's just a possibility that it's planted for that purpose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what about? I mean, God, if you want to go down the line of coincidences. I mean, what about the lone gunman? I'm sure. Indeed. I mean, what does he say? Again, for anyone who doesn't know, very briefly, the lone gunman was a spin-off of the X-Files, and their pilot episode was a plot to fly a plane into the World Trade Center. And at the very last minute, someone foils the plot and the plane flies over it. I mean, come on. I suppose the counter to that is that presumably, you know, Al-Qaeda were watching that and it gave them an idea, you know? 
But I think we're, we're certainly justified in thinking that there are coded messages within the Matrix. I mean, it's absolutely full of it, isn't it? You know, um, you know, Morpheus, the god of dreams, and um, being plugged into the Matrix, and uh, Room 101 is Neo's room, and following the White Rabbit, and uh, I mean, it's just, you know, and Cypher being the sort of Judas figure, what, what is he, a sort of hidden message? Uh, you know, and what is it, Switch, and Mouse, and all these sorts of computer yeah. references, and, the, and you've got that time on the alarm clock of 918 and then 918 appears later on in the film i think it's some sort of computer screen registration of a phone number or something like that anyway which according to rob ager anyway uh, one of the Wachowskis said that um you know this was their wife's birthday or something uh, but the obvious connection is acts 918 where there's the conversion of saul where it says and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight yeah, so it's full of these sorts of things so Maybe there is something to that after all. And then, and then they made uh, V for Vendetta, which I imagine you've seen as well. Have you? I actually haven't seen that. I would love to oh, see that, but that's this that's dystopian uh, police state yeah. based in the UK, I believe, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And um, as I was mentioning you to the beginning, they live as well. I'd really like to recommend you and, and anyone to watch that. I mean, it's almost it, it's so blatant that it's almost not even a metaphor. This mm. is thing about the sunglasses and being able to see. I think, you know, you being a religious guy, do you think the analogy of um, being blind and then seeing, is that a fair analogy of sort of learning about alternative information or, rather than the asleep-awake thing? What about being blind and then being able to see? Well, again, I, if it's totalizing, if it's blankets, this is the problem that I have with it. Whatever whatever analogy right. that you use, I'm just, I think, just think it needs to be nuanced. I mean, in the terms of the biblical use, it is a complete worldview shift. So it seems more justified. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of metaphors, you know, the New Testament will use. So blind mm. um, and then seeing or being in yeah. chains and then being free, light and darkness and all these function in slightly different ways, but basically the same kind of way. And it's because it's a kind of whole worldview change. I mean, certainly... You know, if the gospel going to Gentiles, etc., that's much more of a worldview change than it would be if somebody coming from Judaism to Christianity. There's so many similarities there. But mm. yeah, so it's just when that kind of quasi religious terminology is used of these issues that we're talking about now, I just think, is that no. going too far? Is that really what we're trying to do? I mean, even in The Matrix itself, you know, I love the film. I think it's great. And yeah. Actually, I know people who have used The Matrix for teaching Christian truths because it's open to these kinds of interpretations. But I would be slightly wary of that because it has a Gnostic structure, which slightly concerns me. Yeah. I think certainly a lot of Christians don't seem to pick up mm. on Forgive my ignorance. Could you just tell me about Gnostic briefly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, so this is um, the idea that you, your salvation comes from knowledge, uh, knowing who you really are, knowing what the reality of the world is. And this knowledge frees you and saves you. And so classically, you'd have the world that we live in is a world of it's, it's not really a good world. It's a kind of almost an illusory world. And it's created by mm. a Demiurge, a lesser god, um, Ealda Beoth is a, <laughs> a name that <laughs> sticks in my mind from reading Bertrand Russell on this. Um, but there's a greater god beyond, uh, a greater reality, a, a creator beyond this. But this world is not of that creator, it's of this demiurge that's created it. Um, and we've got to get beyond this, we've got to get mm. to the, the top god somehow by knowing that this is a, a world of, of shadows and that that's how, how we're going to get out of this situation. And 
I see so much of that in the Matrix because, you know, Neo is the one. I mean, it's an anagram of one and he is the one. I mean, you could think of him as Jesus Christ. But then if you go to Platonic philosophy, a Neo-Platonic philosophy, you have the one as, a, as this kind of principle that is above the world of the dem- demiurge that I've just been, been yeah. talking about. And the Matrix is an illusory world. It's not, not a, a real world. It's not a good world. It's um, you can transcend it by knowledge of who you really are. You see, there are so many connections. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just slightly wary of it. And you know, also for those, this is sort of a totalizing thing. Um, it invites that view of looking at the truth movement in this. Ah, we've got to have a complete paradigm shift where we change our worldview in the biggest sense, mm. and, and that's what it's really all about. Yeah, I mean, of course, I think also you've got the tribalism aspect, because I I think when you were talking about people saying, oh, I'm asleep, sorry, you're asleep and I'm awake, I think a lot of it is tribalism, you know, because in the truth movement, what we call the truth movement, you're getting like camps. If you've heard Peter Joseph argued with Alex Jones, Peter Joseph argued with Stefan Molyneux, they argued with each other. And I think the danger of what you're talking about is that because a lot of people really need a tribe to belong to, they're going to see it as something total, like you're saying, because in a way it's almost easier, isn't it? If someone said to you, I'm going to give you half the truth, I'll either give you half the truth and you've got to work the rest out, or I'll give you the whole truth. You're going to go, yeah, it's probably easier. Give me the whole truth, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really do connect with what you're saying there, because this is one of the problems I have with my website and my podcast is that I don't, there are a lot of people I don't please. I don't fit what a lot of people would think as a proper truther, I'm sure, because people have emailed me and they've said, we try to spread the word about the podcast, but we get this kind of response. People say, what's the point? It's a Christian website. I don't want to waste my time with that. And I know that there are Christians who come by the website um people i've contacted say would you come on and 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 you don't you don't get a reply or you get a reply and then you send them the about page and then you don't get a reply and i I just know there are a lot of people who think oh no 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 i'm not touching that that's conspiracy stuff and i mean it's difficult for me because i'm trying to remain true to myself and if i wanted to you know become popular i would do one or the other you know i'd be hey i'm a conspiracy or i'm just into christian apologetics but that's not me i don't have any point in in selling out on that one so that that is that's a difficult place to be i have to say but it connects with i think what you were just saying i don't feel like i belong in a camp and i suspect there are a lot of people who would would like me to be in a particular camp but that's just not what i'm going to do well uh, i think what's slightly unusual about your podcast um, or your website is that of course it's got two elements uh, the christian element and then the sorry to use the word but conspiracy element truth element if you want to call it and so I think, yeah, the problem that you might have, I was sort of anticipating whether you'd have this problem, is that the Christians are put off by the conspiracy stuff and the conspiracy people are put off. I, I was wondering, because when I saw your website, I did think oh, that's unusual because most podcasts have only really got one identity. They're usually like resistance radio or um, further down the rabbit hole and all that kind of thing. But, you know, in, in, in order to have one identity, mm. I have to take upon myself somebody else's categories yeah. and split myself in two mm. unnaturally to fit what somebody else right. wants. In other words, I can't be me. Right. Well, I thought one of the things about the truth movement was that we're supposed to be true to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, it's, so why can't I be who I am and say, forget mm. anybody else's categories. I'm me. I believe certain things. I question certain things. A lot of people do respect that. I'm really pleased that there are people who 
email me and say they're listening. They're not a Christian, but they listen. And vice versa, you know, they're, they're a Christian, they're not interested in 9-11 or they're not interested in climate change issues or whatever it might be, but they listen because that was a really good interview with uh, some Bible scholar or something like that. Um, so that's great, but I am who I am, yeah. and that's it. I mean, have you ever thought of um, having sort of two separate strands? More for a sort of practical reason, not because not you shouldn't have what you've got. Well, ah, then I'm selling myself out to somebody else's anthropology. Why should I do that? Right, right. I might as well not do it. Mm. Because that saying, you are a Christian, you are therefore not allowed to speak into the truth movement. Yeah, yeah. Or vice versa. I'd say it more as a practical thing, maybe, because you want to attract more listeners, presumably. So then I don't, I'd only be doing that by kind of practically lying to them and lying to myself on a practical level. <laughs> well, I mean, when you do, say, the Paul Craig Roberts interviews, you don't mention Christianity. So all I'm saying is that it seems like the two types of interview are separate strands, like they don't necessarily overlap. Well, they don't necessarily. It depends upon what subject you're talking about. Right, okay. I mean, there are a number of New World Order type interviews where the the two things are very much meshed. It just depends on what the subject matter is. Right, yeah. I was going to give this silly example. Feel free to dismiss it. But let's say that, you know, I'm, I'm a sportsman. And I'm also a truther. Would I be selling out by doing a sports podcast all about, say, fitness, and then a podcast all about banking? The problem with it is that uh, it's chalk and cheese, isn't it? Because, you know, the fact that you're interested in sports is not a worldview thing. Right, yes, I see. Whereas my worldview is Jesus-centered. That's it. Um, I believe he is who he is. And so that colors everything. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to talk about it every time if it's not relevant to talk about, but it colours everything. Um, so that, that's it. So at the moment you're saying the disadvantage is that certain people don't want to listen. Uh, well, we were talking about camps, and I'm just feeling the yeah, yeah, yeah. the draw of belonging to a camp. But why should I? And why should anybody else? Why should we have camps? Yes. Why can't we go back to this model of we're all doing what we're doing? We're, we intersect at certain points when we ask yeah. similar questions. Well, I mean, when I, I mean, my blog, I've called it free thinker. And again, is just this very sort of blanket term of thinking for yourself. But a couple of the posts on it have got nothing to do with that. There's one which is sort of comedy, basically. It's got nothing to do with free thinking. But I wanted to have a title that was fairly all-encompassing. Well, I said to you before the interview, that the conversation, sorry, um, that I think that's a, that's <laughs> great. It's a great term, free thinking, and I would consider myself to be a free thinker. I would say you would. And I, oh, I'm going to, I told you before, but, you know, I preached at this church, and uh, at the end of the service, it's traditional that you shake hands with people, have a little word, you know, and this uh, elderly lady came up to me and she, she said, uh, well, thank you very much, but I'm a free thinker. Yeah. I yeah. wanted to just say, say uh, well, I did say, well, so am I a free thinker? How am I? Oh, well, no, you believe such and such and such. And, and you know, the conversation only went so far, really, to be honest. It came to a bit of a brick wall. But uh, why am I not a free thinker just because I have chosen to believe X, Y, and Z freely? There are certain entailments to those beliefs, but, you know, there are a number of arguments that I believe are convincing surrounding my belief of Christianity. And so I think, yes, okay, that's what I believe. And I, I freely believe that. Do you, do you see what I mean? Just because I subscribed. But there's a mm. kind of culture that's been attached to the, the phrase mm. free thinking that means you can't believe certain things. Well, that seems ridiculous to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never really heard of that. Um, no. The other meaning of it, to be honest. Yeah. So we're both we're both free thinkers. I think that's great. Yeah. 
in, in our own different ways. Yeah. And I spend, uh, I essentially spend every day trying to um, communicate with people. Mm. Well, actually, um, people who, who don't know much of what we're talking about, is there any um, documentaries or anything that you'd, you'd recommend to them? And maybe I'll tell you what I'd recommend as a kind of first mm. step. Is there anything that you remember watching and you thought that was really uh, useful? Yeah, I'm actually pulling up the resources page here with videos. Ah, right. And it's just a random selection of things. I haven't um, put anything there for quite a while now, but uh, certainly in the early days, a lot of things are, ah, yeah, that's got to go there. I put these things up. Right. I was really struck by, you were talking about David Shaler earlier on, who you've met and you've interviewed him. Well, there was uh, 9-11 and the British Broadcasting Conspiracy by Adrian Connock and David Shaler, which was responding to the... BBC's uh, The Conspiracy Files program and um, on 9-11. And I thought they did a really good job of pulling that apart, actually. That one I thought was great, certainly for British people to see that. I just had an allergic reaction when you said the BBC Conspiracy Files. Ah! All that come to mind is that when the conspiracy thing went across the screen, it crackled and went... And every conspiracy person they interviewed was in a dark room. That's it. And every mainstream person was in a, on a street with lots of light behind them. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. yeah. How obvious was that? Yeah, but it was great to see it pulled apart in that way. I thought it was really yeah, good. Yeah, it was, yeah. Another little one here that I guess a lot of people won't know this. Uh, this is from quite a few years back. Um, the Penny Drops. Uh, the Cashless Society Cometh, which was produced by some people around this area in the sort of Liverpool area about a world without cash, how convenient that would be for us all. But at the end of the day, convenient for whom, um, for, for the banks and, uh, and the people who mm. want to control us essentially. Uh, that was a, that was a real eye opener. Yeah. Always be wary when something's done for convenience. Oh, there were the little clips. I mean, you say documentaries, mm. but I mean, the clips really are the things that seem to have had the biggest impact upon me. I mean, yeah. seeing building seven come down, that's well, a few seconds long, but wow, what an impact that had. Seeing Norman Mineta's mm. testimony to the 9-11 Commission, the really, really suspicious. The fact that he still sticks to it these days yeah. because uh, he was he was interviewed a few years later by 9-11 Truth Seattle. He sticks mm. to his story, um, and it contradicts the official story in quite a serious way and possibly implicates um, Dick Cheney in what was going on that day. So, yeah, things like that, really. Sir James Goldsmith's testimony to the U.S. Senate on uh, GATT back in 1994. Warning, really, that this is not going to be good for ordinary people. It's going to be good for the corporate world. There's one thing I think people should look at, which is, this is 2011. I knew that this was the kind of attitude of the BBC, but actually to see this happening in front of your eyes is, even so, it's still quite striking. And this was the interview which Michael Rudin of the BBC did with Dr. Niels Harrett. Well, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's worth looking at. It's quite long. But the way that Niels Harrett is treated is just, I think, dreadful. You know, he's not treated with respect. Mm. He's treated in an extremely biased way. He's trying to make his points and he's being shot down all the time. And yet this is supposed to be an interview with the guy for a BBC production. Mm. And it, it tells you a lot about the attitude. So that's worth looking at. And so all these are on the website. So. Did you know that Mike Rudin was a producer of that Conspiracy Files series? That's right. Yeah, that was probably a, a later program in that series, was it? Yeah. 2011. Yeah. Oh, I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. I thought on my blog I might put a kind of uh, almost like a starter's pack or something because I, I don't want to really like 
don't like hit people with anything too extreme, but uh, there's a guy called Andy Thomas in England, and he wrote a brilliant book called The Truth Agenda, and it's incredibly rational. It just goes through all the evidence of basically pretty much every topic that's covered in the truth movement. And it's very rational. He's sort of known. Some people accuse him of sitting on the fence, but I like him. He's, he's rational. He says, we don't know this, but we do know this, you know, that kind of thing. Um, one of uh, David Icke's early talks, which is called The Turning of the Tide, which I've mentioned to you before, it's before the reptilian theory stuff came out. It's before the video screens. It's just him talking. For me, it's very rational. There's another one, which is a compilation called Wake Up Call. And that's a very good compilation of uh, different areas. And that, again, when I first watched that, that had quite a good effect on me. And then a film called The Corporation, which is very sort of non-conspiratorial. It's very factually based. And it talks about the nature of, uh, of corporations. And they actually do a psychological study of corporations and they turn out to be psychopaths <laughs> <laughs> through various criteria. And it talks about mainly about this sort of law. Apparently, there's, it's actually a corporate law that, you can't do anything to, that won't right. maximise profits. It's, it's illegal in some sense. And, of course, you've got the corporate personhood where essentially the criminal is the corporation rather than the, the board of the corporation. You know? But that's a very good documentary. Sure, this is something, actually, that Chomsky has uh, brought he was to in, people's yeah. attention. Yeah, yeah. He, he yeah. was in the corporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, if, if you could ever get this book, Chomsky for Beginners, again, it's very, very easy to read and... You know, and there's plenty of other stuff out there, but 9-11, I guess the guy is David Ray Griffin and 7-7, I guess Tom Secker or maybe Keelan Balderson's. Sure, I agree with you, yeah. All right, mm-hmm. I'm pretty much done now. Okay, yeah, I think I am too. Well, this is, uh, well, what a, st- a strange kind of conversation. That's fantastic. That's been great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't really done this sort of thing before. I mean, there was one, I put out a podcast that was really the, ending of a conversation way back in the early days where I had an interview with J.J. Jones you know the performance artist and singer and uh, we just went on talking after the interview was over uh, for a couple of hours or so and then we just thought hey there's some interesting things in here let's I said to him can I make that into a podcast he said yeah what a good idea so I did that and that that was similar I suppose to what we've been doing here and well why not so I said right at the beginning this isn't going to be a conventional interview and in some ways I'm thinking yeah good um do you want to just before we close remind people i did give your uh, blog address there but i did it very fleetingly i probably so that people couldn't pick it up so do you want to tell people where it is and, and what, what you do there quickly yeah absolutely um contrafib.blogspot.com it's just a yeah a blog at the moment i've got about 23 posts but some of them are quite long and there's a fair amount of information and uh my email as well as contrafib.rocketmail.com and i'm very keen to have feedback as i've said to you i think before uh, dialogue is really what what we're after and uh, i really do enjoy um, corresponding with people by email and i'm more than happy for people to say that they don't agree with certain things i'm talking about as long as it's polite because I, I like uh, i like these kind of discussions either verbal or, or written so yeah excellent yeah the only thing we're missing is the port and the cigars but we can't really <laughs> Can't really do that over the internet. <laughs> yeah, we've got virtual port and virtual security. Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, Anthony, thanks ever so much. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yep. And um, maybe we'll do it again one day. That would be great. Sure. Okay. Thanks, Julian.